Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Six of you doing well. For the rest of you, good to see you as well. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So uh, this last week, we had a little movie night at the uh, Lee household, and uh, my son, he's three years old, and we decided that we would watch Peter Pan. Now, I don't know if you saw the Peter Pan cartoon when you were a kid. I did. It came out in 1953, and so I remember watching it as a kid and then uh, now watching it as an adult. It was very nostalgic. Now, here's the problem, though. Anytime you watch a movie now as an adult that you watched when you were a kid, you realize how weird it is. Okay? You realize how absolutely insane this is. So let me just give you the Zach Lee kind of Rotten Tomatoes summary of Peter Pan, just in case you've never seen it. Peter Pan is basically this kind of effeminate elf who wears tights, and he has a friend, and her name is Tinkerbell, and she is wickedly vindictive, and she is like this woman slash bug, okay? That's what she is. She has bug wings. She's some sort of pixie or sprite or something. And Peter Pan's sole goal in life is to try to get kids to remain in a state of adolescence, all right? That's Peter Pan, basically. That's the story. He would be very in favor of you just living in your mom's basement till you're 30 playing video games. That's Peter Pan. So he goes on all these adventures and all these kind of things. So as we're watching the movie, I'm thinking, what am I doing to my son? Why are we watching this? There's a scene in there, though, <clears throat> where he tries to get these kids to fly. Okay? He tries to get them to fly. He takes his little pixie friend and he sprinkles her dust, I don't know, dandruff, something, on the people and then they can fly. But he says to be able to fly, there's more than just thinking positive thoughts. Here's what he says. He says to be able to fly that you have to have faith and trust and a little pixie dust. That's what he says, okay? Now, as he's saying that, here's what I'm thinking. If it's the case that I would have to believe that I could fly to actually fly, I would never happen. I would never get off the ground. Say some man shows up wearing tights. By the way, I instantly just leave at that moment. I don't engage with this person. But if somebody comes up and they say, hey, man, do you want to fly? I've got some pixie dust. That's a drug dealer, right? That's a drug dealer. You stay away from them. But let's pretend it's real. Peter Pan is there. He sprinkles me with pixie dust. There is no way I'm getting off the ground. And here's why. Because my entire life, I have known that I can't fly, okay? When you hear something when you're young and you believe it for years and years and years, it's really hard to overcome that belief, right? So uh, uh, just for a few examples, so I was told when I was a kid that I cannot sit too close to the TV or I will go blind. Anybody else? So to this day, if I'm too close to the TV, I'll think, I don't want to go blind, and I'll back up, right? Despite the fact that most of us make a living by spending eight hours staring at a computer a foot and a half away from our face, right? I was told as a kid, be careful who you meet online. Don't get in cars with strangers. But now if I want to use an Uber or a Lyft, I summon a stranger online so I can get into their car, okay? There's a lot of reshaping that's going on. Well, the same thing is true in the first century. In the first century, you have this church at Rome, and it consists of people that have become Christians, that have repented of their sins, that love Jesus, and some of them grew up Jewish, and some of them grew up non-Jewish, what's called Gentile, and therefore, it's hard for them to get over certain beliefs that they had held their entire life. So if you grew up Jewish, you would have been told that you have to take Saturday off, you have to keep a Sabbath, you would be told that you can't eat certain meat, you can't wear certain clothes, you can't trim your beard. So when you become a Christian, it's very hard to undo that. Your conscience hasn't caught up to your theology. Your heart has not caught up to your head. 
Or if you grew up Gentile, you grew up going to a pagan temple in the Greek world or the Greco-Roman world, and uh, you then become a Christian, you might feel like when you're eating this meat that was used in pagan rituals that you're somehow worshiping these false gods. Your conscience hasn't caught up to your theology. And so what the Apostle Paul has been doing over the past several weeks is walking us through what does it look like to be Christians and all be a part of one Christian family but not fight each other or judge each other or hate each other on these morally neutral issues, on these issues that are known as adiaphora. That's the fancy theological term we gave you. The singular is adiaphoran, but to keep things from getting confusing, we just use the plural adiaphora. And an adiaphora issue is something that the Bible doesn't explicitly command, and it's something the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid. It's just a matter of conscience, okay? It's something that's morally neutral. So if you want to think of it this way, There are certain things that are evil in and of themselves. Doesn't matter how good your heart is, they're evil in and of themselves. For example, adultery. That is evil in and of itself. Doesn't matter how much you love your mistress or if you do it with a good heart, it's always evil, okay? Blasphemy is evil in and of itself, okay? It's evil in and of itself to curse God, speak falsely about God is evil in and of itself. Sexual assault, that would be something that's evil in and of itself, okay? These things are bad, period. Most of life, though, are not those issues. Most of life are things that can be used in a good way or things that can be used in a bad way, and those things are called adiaphora. The same car that drives you to church can drive you to pick up drugs. The same internet that streams pornography can stream our sermons here at Parkway. The same wine that you might use to have a romantic evening with your wife can be used to try to get drunk and get rid of your problems so you don't have to give them to Jesus. In fact, you can even hit somebody with a Bible. You can use good things in a bad way, but that doesn't mean those things are bad in and of themselves. And so those are the issues that we have been talking about. In the first century, the major hot topics that Christians would divide over are things like holy days, whether they can eat meat that's been used in different religious rituals. Today, Christians fight over issues like what movies Christians can watch or can Christians drink or these kind of things. And so that's what we've been dealing with over the past few weeks. And uh, thankfully, today, we get to uh, start moving away from that topic. That that will kind of be in the background of Romans 15, but we do get to move away from it some here today after we get through verses 1 through 2. So let me uh, pray for us, and then we will jump into the text. Almighty God, we thank you for uh, the Bible. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that you haven't left us just guessing who you are or how to be saved or what you require of us, but rather you've told us in black and white that you've made it clear. So I pray that you would send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to enlighten our hearts and enlighten our eyes. Your word is already inspired. Help us see its inspiration. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, okay? So let me explain uh, in this ongoing conversation of adiaphora issues what Paul here means by strong and what he means by weak, okay? We have a tendency to think that strong Christians are Christians that stay away from non-sinful things in culture because they could be used badly, whereas the Apostle Paul will actually call that type of Christianity weak. That's not my language. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be offensive. That's what Paul's going to say. Strong Christianity is Christianity that so trusts Jesus that your conscience is not bothered by matters of food and drink, that are not bothered by these adiaphora issues, okay? So think of it this way. Imagine that there's a Christian restaurant, okay? We're all Christians in the restaurant. It's owned by Christians. They only serve Christian food, whatever the heck that means. It's a Christian restaurant, okay? Adiaphora issues are like you're given a menu. You don't have to order everything on the menu. You might not like some of those things on the menu, 
but other people might like them. In fact, some of the things on the menu you shouldn't partake in. If you're allergic to shellfish and shellfish is on the menu, that would be wrong for you to do it, but that doesn't mean it's wrong for somebody who's not allergic to shellfish. Now, what you can't do is order something that's not on the menu. You can't say, I'd like a big bowl of poison, please. That's like sin. That's bad all the time. That's bad for everybody, okay? But what we're talking about when we talk about all Diafra issues are, it's like a menu. You don't have to order everything on the menu, but it would be wrong for you to do this, for you to be sitting at your table and look over and judge someone for what they're eating at their table because you have a shellfish allergy and they do not. Conversely, it would be wrong for you if you're eating the shellfish to look across the table and say, what a weak person. That person can't eat shellfish. Why don't they just have better genetics? That would also be wrong, okay? So what the Apostle Paul has been doing is he's been saying within Christianity, you have strong Christians whose conscience are not bothered by these issues, and you have weak Christians whose consciences are. They're both loved by God. They're both Christians. This doesn't mean they're weak in every area, but what Paul has been calling us to is unity, okay? Now, notice, the Apostle Paul here in verse 1 takes the side of the strong. He says, we, when he's talking about the strong, and he calls the view of the weak failings. Literally, in Greek, it says the weaknesses of the weak. But that's not the main command here. The main command here today is actually against the strong, okay? Here's what he says. Let's look at verse 1 again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay, let me explain what I mean by this. I have two hands. Everybody see this? Okay, just in case you were wondering, this is not a fake hand or something. I have two hands. They're both equally hands, okay? But I am strongly right-handed, okay? I'm strongly right-handed. If I have to throw something left-handed, it kind of looks like this, right? You ever done that with a bunch of guys? You have like an off-handed throwing contest and it looks ridiculous? Now, I have a strong hand and I have a weak hand, but I need both of them for the body, okay? So if I go to the gym and I'm in there with my five-pound weight, you know, just crushing it, five pounds, I can do a bunch of reps with my right hand, okay? When I get to my left hand, I can't do as many reps because it's not as strong. So I just cut it off. No, I don't do that. I don't just cut off my left hand because it's not as strong, okay? I don't just talk badly to my left hand like you're working out and you see me and I'm like, you're such a dumb left hand. Why aren't you strong like the right? I'm not doing that. I don't make my right hand weaker so that my left hand doesn't feel bad. I don't do that either. You know what I do? As I'm lifting weights with my left hand, I take my right hand and I help lift that left hand as well. I take my stronger hand and I use it to strengthen my weaker hand, okay? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying that we should do. We who, if your conscience is not bothered by these things, you're what Paul calls the strong, you should not disdain or cut off or whatever the weaker brothers in Christ, but rather you're to strengthen them. And that doesn't mean that they have to agree with your position. My left hand will never be as strong as my right, okay? It'll never be as strong as my right. But guess what? As I'm lifting with my left hand, I use my right to strengthen it so that my whole body is edified. Right and left work together to strengthen the whole body. That's what Paul is saying. Where there is disagreement on these issues of dancing or drinking or playing cards or whatever these adiaphora issues, we're not to judge each other on those. We do judge each other on sin, but we don't judge each other on those. Rather, we build one another up. Whether we all come to the same conclusion at the end of the day or not is irrelevant. We build each other up. That's what he says to the strong. Don't use your strength just for you so that you can just please yourself and focus on you. God is not American. He doesn't care as much about our freedoms as we do. Rather, we lay down our freedoms for the sake of building up our brothers in Christ. That's the idea here of verse 1, okay? So whether you're strongly right-handed or left-handed, you're strong or weak, it doesn't matter. I'm strongly right-handed, all right? I'm like the, the drummer from Def Leppard. I mean, my right hand is the only thing that really matters, but I have to use it to strengthen 
the week. Now look at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Okay? What does it mean for let, to let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up? First of all, where it says here to please your neighbor, this doesn't mean that you become a people pleaser. Okay? When you become a people pleaser, what you're doing is you're doing these acts to help people because you don't find your identity in Christ, you find your identity in what other people think of you. So being a people pleaser, the problem is not that you're helping people, it's that you have a fear of man. You, your, your opinion of yourself and your identity is found in what other people think of you, so it's not asking you to be a people pleaser. It's also not asking you to please somebody or help somebody else if they're asking you to help them sin. Everybody with me on that? So if Jeff comes up to me and he's like, Zach, I know you like gun stuff. Would you help me rob a bank? Okay. The Bible says to please your neighbor, and that would please me if you would help me rob this bank. You know, a, a friend will help you move. A good friend will help you move a body. That kind of thing. My answer to that is no, right? I don't please him in sin. What is this text saying? Here's what it's saying. Don't look only to your own interest, but rather actually love people even when you disagree with them on audiophora issues. Actually love them, actually build them up, actually care for them. Now, let me tell you why this is radical. We live in a culture that says, if you disagree with me, then you hate me. I don't know if you know this or not, but that's our culture. It's very divided. It's very polarized. Every question is, are you on my team or are you on the opposite team? Do you affirm everything that I affirm or do you deny everything that I affirm? There's no room for nuance in our culture, okay? Everybody has to pick a side, and then they hate one another. The Bible allows us to be Christians and disagree on certain issues and still be friends and still be family and still build one another up and still love each other. Amen? This is unique. This is a way that, our, uh, that Christianity, in fact, can speak truth into a lost and dying culture is that we can have unity on these things that we disagree about, whereas culture just wants to fight each other on these different issues, Okay? So before we move on to verse 3, I want to give kind of a final word to the weak and a word to the strong here, okay, as we kind of move uh, out of uh, audiophora issues for the most part. If you are somebody who has a sensitive conscience, you're somebody who, yes, you're a Christian, but maybe your conscience hasn't caught up with you on certain cultural activities, okay? Here's my encouragement to you. Ready? Don't judge others, but rather hang out with people that disagree with you. Hang out with the strong. And don't just get mad at them to condemn them. A great way to deal with this is to ask a question. So if I teach something in theological equipping and somebody sends me an email and they say something like, Zach, I hate you, you're a heretic, you should never teach again, I don't respond really well to that email. But if instead they say this, Zach, you said something in theological equipping, I don't know if I fully understand or if I, uh, if I agree with, can you help me see where you're coming from? Well, now there's a good healthy conversation going on where we can shape and encourage each other. So if you find yourself to be more of what the Bible would call the weak, again, not my term, not trying to be offensive, hang out with the strong and ask questions, okay? If you find yourself to be more of the strong, here's my encouragement to you, ready? Hang out with the weak, not to just change their mind, but just because you actually love them. It's okay to have that conversation, but you should hang out just because you love them. So I'll give you an example. I have a, uh, or I had a uh, philosophy professor, and uh, he is a guy who is, can be a little legalistic. He errs on the side of kind of being the weak, okay? I've had conversations with him. <clears throat> We've debated back and forth. And at the end of the day, I don't think that there's any changing his mind. I'm not sure there's any changing my mind. So you know what we do when we hang out now? We just hang out and love one another. We'll go get lunch. We'll talk about how ministry's going. We'll pray for one another. Even though we don't hold the exact same views on, you know, drinking or whatever it is, we can still be friends and we can still love each other. And through that relationship, things change. There was a student who asked, recently asked him, he said, uh, I won't say his name, but he said, 
uh, Professor, are you okay with Christians playing cards? And he said, you know what? I just became okay with that, and eventually I'll be okay with men having long hair, just conquering one legalism at a time, which is such a great answer, right? <laughs> this is such a great answer. And so we are to love those that disagree with us. Why? Look at verse 3. Paul's going to give the premier example of why that is. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Let me say this as strongly as I can say it. If Jesus was willing to die for you, are you not willing for one hour to give up one of your rights to keep one of your fellow brothers in Christ from stumbling? That's what Paul is saying. He's pointing to the person who had the ultimate freedom. He's pointing to the God-man who died for us, who gave up all these things so that we might be saved. He's saying, can you not, in loving one another, for one meal, not have a drink if your brother struggles with alcoholism, or for one meal, not eat meat for somebody that's offended by that, or for one season, give up watching some show that violates somebody's conscience. Can you not do that if Christ gave up so much? Okay? Here he quotes from Psalm 69. Okay? He quotes from Psalm 69.9, and in Psalm 69.9, there are these people that are railing and blaspheming against God, and the psalmist says that as they're doing that to God, those reproaches fall on him. This is a prototype of Christ, who is the ultimate uh, example of this, the ultimate one who, when people blaspheme God, that it falls on Christ because He is Himself God. Okay, now let me tell you something about this with our, our view of Christ and theology and these kind of things. Is Jesus just an example for us? No, He is not. Okay? Look at me. This is really important. It's not just that Jesus is an example for us, that He shows you how to be a good person. Jesus is our Savior. He does the stuff for us. He just doesn't show us how to do the stuff. He does the stuff for us. He lives the life we should have lived. He dies on a cross to take the punishment we should die. He does all of the saving. You cannot save yourself. You cannot earn salvation. Salvation is a gift because what Christ alone has done. Amen. Amen. Okay? You have to be careful here because there are some times in church history where people have ignored Jesus being Savior and they have only focused on His example. There was an early church heretic, a guy named Pelagius. Boo. Yes. Good. Bunch of Pavlov's dogs in here. We've got it. When we say Pelagius is a heretic, which is why everybody booed. If you're a visitor, you're like, that's weird. It is weird, but it's funny. And, uh, and so Pelagius was this heretic. And what Pelagius taught was that Jesus was your example of how you can be saved. Jesus did all these good things. And so if you'll just try to be like Jesus and do these good things, then you'll earn salvation. Pelagius thought that you were born morally neutral. You weren't born sinful to him, that you were just born neutral and you could choose good or bad, okay? There was later time in church history, uh, there was this movement known as theological liberalism. That's not the same as political liberalism, so ignore that for a second. Theological liberalism was this idea that we should remove all the supernaturalness of Christianity. Let's deny the Trinity, deny the full deity of Christ, let's deny that there are miracles, let's deny the truthfulness of the Bible, but let's just use Jesus as our example of how we can love our neighbors and be really kind and have, to quote a guy named Schleiermacher, a God consciousness of how we are dependent upon God, okay? Now, Jesus is not primarily our example. He's primarily our Savior, but please hear me. He is also an example. You just can't mix the roles. Jesus is primarily our Savior. He does all the saving, and then as we look at His life in Scripture, we also learn what we should look like as well. That's great, okay? But that is very different than denying his saviorness and only focusing on his example. Paul's not doing that. Paul spent 11 chapters talking about how Jesus has saved you, and now he's simply pointing out how Christ has laid down his rights in the sense for the sake of those he loves. So, when Jesus becomes a man, he does not in any way lay down his eternal deity, okay? 
When Philippians says Jesus empties himself, he does not stop being God. God can't stop being God. He doesn't lay down any of his attributes. He doesn't lay any of that down. Here's what he lays down, his privilege. He didn't have to come save you, but he did because he loves you. So think of all the things that Christ does in laying down rights. When the Pharisees come and mock him, he could have just evaporated them right there. He could have just incinerated them. But instead, he shows the example of turning the other cheek. Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes. People get mad at Jesus because they assume he's doing bad things because he hangs out with bad people. Jesus decides to be homeless. The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but Jesus has no place to lay his head. Why is he homeless? So he can spend all his time in ministry, so he can move around preaching the gospel, okay? Jesus decides to be single. It wouldn't have been wrong or sinful for Jesus to take a wife, but for the sake of ministry, he decides to give up that right, okay? He spends his life teaching. Teaching is a ton of fun, but it's also a lot of hard work, and people hate you when you say something they don't like. Jesus takes that reproach because it's for our good. And then ultimately, he dies for us. He lays down his life for people who hate him because he loves them so much. He's beaten, cursed, spat on, mocked, whipped, and killed. And if Jesus can do that, can you not, for one meal, for one hour, for one season, lay down sometimes a right that you have in Christ for the sake of lifting up your brother? That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's saying. you're, You're meant to see a contrast of really how little the Bible is asking of us in this. If Christ gave up everything, can you not give up this small thing? It's meant to be shocking. It's kind of like if, uh, so let's say Tim, our worship leader, becomes a famous rock star, okay? He puts out an album that Jeff mentioned this as a joke in Theological Equipping. He puts out an album called Tiny Temptations, right? (laughs) He puts out this album, and it goes quintuple platinum. He's got movies. He's got record deals. He's doing all these things. He becomes a billionaire, right? He's buying yachts. He's buying uh, jets. He's wearing rich clothes, I guess made of silk. That's just what I assume rich people wear, just silk clothes. He's taking trips to Miami. Again, just something I assume rich people do. That just sounds like something you do when you're rich. You go to Miami a bunch. And so Tim is doing all that. And he says, you know, the wealth hasn't gone to my head though, because each year I give $100 to a local charity. You would say, that's nothing to you. If you're a billionaire and you give up $100, that's nothing. That's meant to be the contrast that you're supposed to see here. If Christ gave up so much, if he was reproached, can you not do what's best for your neighbor? You see, this odd diaphora conversation we've had really isn't about all the little issues. It's about whether or not you are willing to lay down something you have to love somebody else. Whether or not you're willing to not judge somebody even though you think what they're doing is bad, though it's not. Or whether or not you're willing to lay down a right you have because you love your brother more than you love yourself. That's really what this text is about, okay? Verse 4. Is it legitimate for Paul to use this passage in talking about Christ to teach us? Yes, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Look how verse 4 begins. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Okay? Here's what you need to know about interpreting the Bible. Okay? It is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus. It's not just a collection of a bunch of weird stories. All those stories point to Christ. The story of David and Goliath is not how this little, you know, startup company can fight the big conglomerate or something like that. It's a story about this anointed Messiah king who comes in to destroy the enemy of God's people and lead them to victory. The story of Moses is not about this sweet guy with a staff that does magic tricks. It's about a deliverer who leads God's people out of Egypt, out of this wicked place under this wicked king, and into a promised land. 
All the purity laws of the Old Testament are not just to be these little ticky-tacky laws. They're meant to show you how righteous Christ makes you. All of it's about Jesus. So when Paul says, you should lay down your rights, Christ has set the example. I'm quoting from the Old Testament. He is doing so absolutely legitimately. Let me show you a few passages. John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice, they just said that all the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, was all about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises made in the Old Testament, all the passages, Christ is the exclamation point of all those. They, he is the fulfillment of all those things. Luke 24, 27. This is when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all about Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be about Jesus. It means to submit to Jesus, to love Jesus, to put your hope in Jesus, that Jesus has died for you, Jesus has saved you. It's all about him. And Paul is pointing to this passage to show that. But he says even more than that here. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So yes, all the passages about Christ, but Paul is saying something else here. He's saying all of the Old Testament is meant to instruct you. All of it. Just because you're not under the Mosaic law, these 613 commands, I think was the number given to it by a guy named Benedict Spinoza, these 613 commands that were given to Israel for a time you're not under those anymore. Christ has fulfilled those. You can eat pork. Amen. You can eat bacon. Amen. You can eat shellfish. Amen. You can trim your beard. Amen. Okay, you're no longer under the Mosaic law. But here's what you're still under. Ready? The Old Testament. Okay? It's still God's Word. You don't cut three-fourths of your Bible off. Okay? Just because it's the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells you who God is and what He likes and what He doesn't like and prophesies a Savior. And even in looking in the Mosaic law, you can see wisdom of how we apply it to today. And so Paul is going to say that all of that was not just written to Israel. Ready? It was written to you. Let me say it clearer. The Bible is not originally written to you, but it is originally written for you. It's originally written to Israel or the church at Rome or the church at Ephesus or whatever, but really it's for you. It's for you and me. It is written by extension to us because we are believers as well. Let me show you a few passages here. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul writes that, the New Testament is not done being written yet. The word there he uses, Scripture, in Greek is graphe. It's a reference to the Old Testament. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring that... Uh, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now look at this next line. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He's saying as prophets in the Old Testament are writing, they're wondering who is this going to be fulfilled in and it's fulfilled in us. That's what he's saying. Romans 4, 22 through 24, when it's talking about Father Abraham and how he was justified. He was declared to be righteous by God, not by cleaning himself up and trying to be a good person, but just by faith in Christ. It says this, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 10. 
For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. I know that's everybody's life verse, that you have that crocheted on a pillow somewhere in your house. Look what he says. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Okay. We, we here at Parkway like to make fun of cats. Okay. We like to make fun of cats. Now, here's the deal. It's just a cheap joke. We're not really mad, right? I don't, I don't kick a cat, at least why nobody's watching. And so, uh, so we like to make fun of cats. So sometimes when we do that, someone will come up and they'll say, Zach, the Old Testament says that you should have regard for the life of your beast. Well, here's why I love this passage. This passage says it's not really about the animals, it's about us. So the cat jokes will continue. The cat jokes will continue, okay? What this text is saying is even there, there, though there are these commands in the Old Testament about how you should take care of your animals, and yes, you should take care of your animals. Don't really kick them. I'm just joking, okay? Take care of your animals. They're not written to the animals. The animals can't read, okay? This is an animal farm or something. Instead, they're written to us. They're written to us. When we see these commands, we are to say, how does this apply to me? 1 Corinthians 10, 8 through 11. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Okay? So here's what Paul's saying just to summarize. When you are reading the Bible, you should be asking yourself these two questions. How is this about Jesus? Because it's always about Jesus somehow. And how does this edify me? How does this grow me? How does this encourage me? Because it's also written for you. It's written about Christ for you and your growth and your sanctification. Now look at verse 4. He continues on here with something that's really interesting. He says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay. It has been said that a man can go three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without air, but he can't go a second without hope. Hope is what gets you up in the day. It's, it's why you do everything because of hope. Everything that you do, whether you are eating or getting up or going to work or playing with your kids, it's all because you're hoping for something. Okay? As a Christian, the hope is the glory of God, the resurrection, all these good things that are coming. And here's what the Bible just gave us. It just gave us two ways that you can grow in hope. It just gave us two ways that you can grow in joy, that you can grow through these things. Okay? The first one it said was endurance. The second one was the encouragement of the Scriptures. So let me talk about both of these real quick. When we are going through some type of suffering, and you will suffer, if you're not currently suffering, you're going to suffer, okay? Welcome to Parkway. We just tell you the truth. You're going to suffer if you're not already suffering. When you go through some type of suffering, we have a tendency to do one of two things. One, we just instantly try to get out of the suffering as quickly as possible, okay? We assume that suffering is weird, and so we need to get away from it. Now, let me be very clear. If you can get out of suffering, do it. If you're sick, take medicine. Okay? If you're in a bad marriage, don't get out of your marriage. Go get marriage counseling. Get out of the bad part, which is the fighting, but not the good part, which is your marriage. Okay? If you are going through some psychological issue, some spiritual issue, some financial issue, and you can get out of it, please get out of it. Okay? Get out of suffering if you can do it. But what happens when you've tried and the suffering remains? What happens when you've tried and the darkness will not lift? Well, then we go to option two, which is this. God must be trying to get me to figure something out, and if I will just have a light bulb moment, if I will just figure out this quiz that God's giving me, then the suffering will go away, okay? Now, again, sometimes that's true. Sometimes you go through suffering, God is teaching you a lesson, and once you've learned the lesson, the bad goes away. That happens sometimes, okay? But here's my question for you. What happens when you're going through suffering, 
physical, financial, marital, spiritual, whatever it is, you're going through suffering, and you've tried to get out of it, and it doesn't go away, and you feel like you've learned your spiritual lesson, what God's trying to teach you, and it still doesn't go away, then what do you do? Ready? You endure. You endure. You just sit in the suffering, knowing that God still loves you, and He is sanctifying you, and He is doing something with it, whether you know it or not. Okay? You endure. Endurance produces suffering. I'm sorry, endurance produces hope. Endurance through suffering produces hope. So let me give you an example. Let's say I'm a physical trainer. I'm not. I still try to throw up almost every time I run. I'm not a physical trainer, but let's say I was a physical trainer, and I put you on a treadmill, okay? And I put little walls around the treadmill so you can't get off. I'm like a really scary, weird, intense physical trainer, okay? And you start running on the treadmill. Your lungs are burning. Your legs are burning. You're thinking, I got to get off the treadmill. And you say, can I get off this treadmill? And I say, nope, you got to stay on the treadmill, okay? You then don't go this. You don't go, okay, well, I bet I'm just supposed to learn a lesson. And here's the lesson. Running is good for me. I've learned my lesson, Zach. Let me off the treadmill. Running is good for me. Nope, because if I let you off now, you're still not in shape. You know what gets you in shape? Just keeping you on the treadmill. Just keeping you on the treadmill. Letting you slog it out and wrestle and get mad and get upset and hurt and cry. That is often how God uses suffering. If you can get out of it, do it. If you're supposed to learn some lesson, learn it. But what happens when God keeps you on that treadmill? You know what he's doing? He's producing hope in you. He's using that endurance to produce hope because he loves you too much for you to not be spiritually healthy. But there's a second thing it gives us to produce hope, not just the endurance. The encouragement of the Scriptures. Reading the Bible produces hope. Reading the Bible encourages us. So here's what I'm going to say to you. Ready? Read your Bible. Now, I don't say that as some like pastor that's like, read your Bible and brush your teeth and comb your hair and be a good person. That's not why I'm saying that. What I'm saying is, by reading the Bible, what you're doing is you're replacing evil thoughts with righteous thoughts. You're replacing false theology with true theology. You're replacing self-sufficiency with gospel-centeredness. So the reason you read the Bible isn't just because you're supposed to, although you should read it even if you're not feeling close to God. The Bible and reading the Bible produces hope in us according to this text. When you are going through something where you feel like God is a million miles away and you read that God will never leave you nor forsake you, that produces hope. When you're going through a difficult marriage and you read that your hope is found in Christ and nothing else, that produces hope. When you have a sick child and something bad could happen to your child and you read in the Psalms that though everything may fail, who have I in heaven but you? It produces hope. You will find yourself growing in joy and growing in hope just by knowing more of the Bible. It is written to encourage us. It is written to encourage us in the Scriptures. Okay, Zach, I'm new to Christianity or I'm new to Parkway. I don't really know how to read the Bible. There's a bunch of weird stuff. What do I do? Well, let me just give you simple tips. Ready? Start in the New Testament and read the New Testament first, then read the Old Testament. If you do it the other way around, things will get really confusing, okay? Start in the book of Luke and read the rest of the New Testament. Luke, John, Acts, Romans, etc. Rest of the New Testament. And then once you've done that, start one chapter in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament per day, and just slowly work your way through. Start in Genesis 1-1. I'm sorry, Genesis 1, Matthew 1. Next day, Genesis 2, Matthew 2. Next day, Genesis 3, Matthew 3. And if you will just do that, and by the way, that takes typically less than 10 minutes a day, you will have worked through the New Testament several times by the time you've worked through the Old Testament, and you can just keep learning your Bible, okay? But Zach, I don't understand it. That's okay. The more you read, the more you will understand it. 
First time I read the Constitution, I have no idea what it's saying. But then if I take a class on law and I read other writings by the Founding Fathers and I read the Constitution 10 times, now it starts to make sense. It's the same way with anything. It's the same way with reading the Bible. So just start doing a little bit. You can do it during breakfast. You can do it during lunch. You can audiobook it in your car. You will have more hope the more you know the Scriptures. Verses 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the first part of verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Here's what this text is calling us to. On issues that are morally neutral, on issues that are matters of conscience, we are simply to love one another and to build one another up. Listen, we are our brother's keeper, okay? We are to care not just about us, but about each other. So we were having Tex-Mex recently. We're a Tex-Mex family. That's a common staple in the Lee household. And uh, the uh, waiter came and set down a little bowl of salsa and a little bowl of bean dip next to my son. He's three. And so he takes a chip, and he starts dipping it in the bean dip. And I look over there, and I say, what are you doing there, buddy, getting a little bean dip? And he looks at me, and he goes, don't worry about me. And he starts eating it, okay? And I couldn't stop laughing because he was just so cool. He's like, don't worry about me. Now, here's the thing. I have to worry about him because I love him. I will always worry about him because I love him. This text is saying we should worry about each other, not in an anxious way, not in like a sinful anxiety way. We should care what's going on with one another. When one part of the body weeps, every part weeps with it. When one part of the body rejoices, all the parts rejoice with it, that we are to have unity with one another. But there are places to draw lines around the unity, okay? So let me say it as clearly as I can. There are things that are worth leaving a church for, and there are things that are not. There are things worth breaking fellowship for, and there are things that are not. When the Bible calls us to unity, it's not unity at all cost, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, but in some of the circles that some of you guys run in and some of the circles that I run in, in larger evangelicalism, larger Protestantism, the ultimate sin is disunity. Some people think of doctrine as dividing, as doctrine is bad, whereas Martin Luther would say unity if possible, truth at all cost. Much of evangelism would say truth if possible, unity at all cost. So it's not unity at all cost. It's unity on adiaphora issues. That's what this text is calling us to. So I've created a list of four different categories that we're going to put up on the screen as a little, uh, little guide for us of major doctrines, minor doctrines, practical applications, and adiaphora issues. So let me explain each of these, okay? Major doctrines are things to die for. Major doctrines are things like the Trinity, as it's been historically conceived, the full eternal deity and the true humanity of Christ, uh, the truthfulness of the scriptures, these kind of things. These are major doctrines. These are things to die for. If you deny these things, you're not a denomination, you're a cult, or you're a different religion. Same thing, okay? Next, there are minor doctrines. Those are things to fight for. I don't mean like physically fight for. I don't mean like you punch somebody over their view of baptism. What I mean is they're things to stand up for. They're things to debate up. They're, they're, they're things to fight for in a uh, metaphorical sense. Minor doctrines are things like church government, right? or your view of spiritual gifts, or your view of the end times. If you put a gun to my head and ask me if I believe in the Trinity, I will say yes, and I will die for that. If you put a gun to my head and you say, are you willing to die for your view of church government? No way, right? It's important. The Bible does speak to it, and so we want to hold what the Bible says on it, but it's not as important. The third category are practical applications. These are things to rebuke for. These are where people have a tendency, they might even have the same major doctrines as you, and the same minor doctrines as you, but maybe they're not very consistent in the way that they apply it in their lives. Maybe they haven't submitted their political views to Christ. Maybe they haven't submitted their views about marriage to Christ 
or sexuality. Maybe they haven't uh, submitted their views about parenting and how the Bible would tell us to parent to Christ. They agree doctrinally, but when it comes to their practical life, they have sometimes a tendency to not be in accord with their doctrine. Those are things to rebuke for. Those are things to have conversations about. And lastly, adiaphora issues, matters of conscience, those are things to get coffee for, okay? They're not things to fight over. They're not things to split a church over. They're not things to uh, demonize somebody over. They are simply things to chat about, okay? So keep in mind that you don't confuse these categories. Some people hold practical applications like their major doctrines. Some people hold major doctrines like their adiaphora, and it doesn't really matter. These are a helpful grid that you can think through. Major doctrines, things to die for. Minor doctrines, things to stand up slash fight for. Practical applications, things to rebuke for. And then adiaphora issues, things to get coffee for. Lastly, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The unity of the church speaks to its truthfulness. Okay? We live in a very divided culture. We live in a very divided era. Everything is us versus them, you versus me. What side are you on? The church speaks to the truthfulness of God as we are united together. Isn't that amazing? That in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, okay? We don't highlight racial distinctions. We say, your primary identity is in Christ. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. We don't highlight gender differences. Rather, we say, your identity is in Christ. In Christ, there's neither uh, slave nor free. We don't highlight socioeconomic status. We minimize that because we are exalting Christ. When you become a Christian, all your other identities die, and you're just in Christ. That's it. And our unity speaks to the truthfulness of Christianity. Where else do you get a room full of people where you have black and white, where you have men and women, where you have rich and poor, where you have old and young, where you have all these different things all centered around the glory of Christ? It's amazing. So we don't unify over false doctrine. We don't unify at all cost. But when it comes to these adiaphora issues and these kind of things, we must unify. It speaks to the glory of God, okay? It speaks to the glory of God. That's what he's saying. If you are somebody who's here today, and maybe you're checking us out, you're visiting, maybe you've been a few times, whatever it is, and you are wondering, what is Christianity all about? Why am I here hearing some weird lesson on some weird word called adiaphora I've never heard before in my life? What is the point, okay? The point of Christianity is not eating and drinking. The point of Christianity is Christ. If you're wondering, what does God want from me? He just wants you to trust Jesus. He wants you to turn from your sin and ask Jesus to save you. He wants you to bow the knee and submit to Jesus. That's all God wants from you. Do I have to clean myself up? Do I have to get better? I've lived an entire life of sin. How am I going to fix that? You don't have to worry about that. You simply come to Jesus, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, and he will do all the stuff. So I want you to ask yourself today, do I know Christ? Have I repented and trusted in Christ? Has he changed my life? Or am I just playing church? Maybe you've been playing church for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Have you been transformed by Christ? Because that's what Christianity is about. The kingdom of God, as we saw in a previous sermon, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but love, joy, peace, and the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Spirit? Have you been transformed? Let's pray as those helping serve communion come to pass out the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. I thank you for this passage. I confess that I myself have a tendency sometimes to err on the side of the strong and despise the weak, and so I just want to repent of that because that's sin. I pray for those who are on the side of the weak, that they would love the strong, that there would just be unity. I pray for protection for our little body here at Parkway, that we would love one another, care for one another. 
I thank you for this text, and I ask that you bless this time of communion now. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.